we have been uh, attending the 11 o'clock service, so uh, many of you we haven't seen in months. Uh, so it's good to see some faces with which we were just uh, beginning to become familiar with uh, as we moved here uh, just a year ago to begin our work at Westminster Theological Seminary. So it's good to, to be with, with you this morning. Um, as you know, uh, Pastor Huber just completed a, a series from the summer until last week on a, a biblical theology of place. Uh, working through various passages uh, throughout Scripture, uh, talking about the importance of, of place. This is our Father's world, as, as the hymn uh, says, from creation to, to consummation in all parts and places in, in between. And last week he concluded uh, with a passage from the end of Revelation describing the new heavens and the new earth, right? that, that new place that God has, has promised and we're assured of because Jesus has already raised from the dead and it's the beginning of that, of that new creation in his flesh and the outpouring of, of his spirit that even now begins to make all things new beginning with us. But Revelation as a whole, you might say, is about how we get to that place from this place. And you see that here at the beginning of, of John's revelation, which is actually a, a letter uh, directed, as we'll see, to uh, seven churches throughout Asia Minor. Uh, John is in a place called Patmos, and we'll talk about that as a place of exile. He writes to uh, seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor in, in modern-day Turkey in various places facing various trials, various temptations, various tribulations. And so again, the question is, how do we get from this place, the place of trial and trouble and tribulation, to that place, the place of the new heavens and the new earth? And again, Revelation in many ways is about passing through all of those various trials and tribulations that we experience in this place, on the way to that place. And so, as, as we'll see here, as John addresses these various churches in Revelation, uh, the first thing that they need to see uh, is not what is right before them in the various places within which they reside, but they first need to have their attention drawn to Jesus himself, which is what Jesus does. Uh, at the beginning of this revelation that he shows to John. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 1, and I'll begin in verse 9 and read for us through verse 20, and then I'll pray before we consider this passage together. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, this revelation of the resurrected, ascended, and glorious Lord Jesus. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Gracious God, we, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in and though, as we read elsewhere in your word, these, these days of uh, revelatory visions and theophanies and the like have ceased, you have recorded for us once for all in your word everything needed to know you and the salvation that is held out to us and to the world. And so with, with this vision that you showed to your apostle John, uh, recorded for us, sent to the churches, uh, would we behold you this morning, uh, that we might correctly behold all things. Uh, we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. A number of years ago, I think it's been about seven or eight years, uh, there was a, uh, a sequel, really a prequel, that came out to the movie The Wizard of Oz, that very strange movie. At least I always found that movie rather strange, but ubiquitous, right? Surely you're familiar with the movie The Wizard of Oz. And, and the second movie that, that came out was titled Oz the Great and Powerful. And it was set about 20 years prior to when that, the, the, the story of the original movie, those events, occurred. Of course, if you remember the, the original movie, The Wizard of Oz, as Dorothy and her companions are making their way to Oz in order to see the wizard at the end of the movie, uh, it's revealed that the wizard is not a wizard at all. He's just this small old man uh, behind a curtain pretending to be something that, that he actually is not. And so this second movie, Oz the, the Great and Powerful, uh, purports to tell his story. The story of Oscar Diggs, who himself was swept away to, to Oz in a, a hot air balloon uh, prior. He had been a uh, magician uh, for a circus and found his way to Oz, and through cunning took upon himself this role of, of Oz, the great and powerful, but again, neither great nor powerful, uh, simply manipulating people uh, from behind the scenes. Now, of course, uh, many, many people live as though there were nothing 
great and powerful behind the things we see, behind the things that, that are before us. Uh, you have a, a view of the world that all there is to see, it, all there is are the things that we can see, and maybe we haven't seen them all, maybe we don't understand them all, but they're all wrapped up. Anything great and powerful is wrapped up in the things that are before us. There may be mysteries to it, uh, but those mysteries are simply because we can't fully explain it. We haven't seen it in all of its intricacies, but it's all there before us. It's all there for us to be able to, to comprehend. Now, I would imagine that uh, most, if not uh, all of you, do not hold to that materialistic view of, of the world, that all there is are the things uh, before us. But, of course, we so easily live our lives that way as though there are nothing great and powerful behind it all, that we're simply living with what's before us and our love for this world, uh, our, our desire to um, have the things of this world as though uh, all, that, all that there is are the things that are before us, nothing greater, not, nothing more powerful. Uh, now, again, most of us would not call ourselves materialistic in, in, in that sense, but it's easy to live as though we are, uh, that uh, what's before us has all of our attention. We have no vision for anything greater, anything more, more powerful. But what John sees here in this vision of the resurrected, ascended, uh, glorious Lord is who he is in relation to the things that are before us. And John is told, again, as he's shown this, he's told to write this and send it to the churches because this is what we always need. We always need to have a clear image of what's behind it all if we're to be faithful in the things that are before us. And it's this vision of Jesus himself who is truly great and powerful who stands in the midst of the churches. We can never lose sight of what's behind us as John hears this voice behind him. We can never lose sight of what's behind us as we face all the various things before us. And that's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church. We need to clearly see what's behind us if we're to remain faithful to him in the things that are before us. And that's what I, I, I want us to consider as we work ourselves, work through this, this passage uh, together, that we, clear, we need to clearly see what's behind us, the, the great and powerful, glorified Lord Jesus, if we're to remain faithful in the face of what's before us. But before we look at Jesus himself, as he reveals himself to John, I want us to consider what John sees before him. And that's what we'll do in, in our first point. What's before us may distress us. Um, or at the very least, what's before us may not impress us. If you think of John himself, he has this very powerful vision. Uh, but John is not in a very impressive place as he has this powerful vision in verse 9. We're told that this revelation comes to him as he's on the island called Patmos. 
Now, a little background to understand the significance of, of this. Uh, John himself, the apostle, had uh, ministered among these churches that, that he writes to. Uh, these churches in Asia Minor, in fact, he had, he had spent a number of years uh, ministering in Ephesus, the first of the churches uh, that's listed here in the letters that, that follow in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. But John had been exiled to Patmos by, by Rome because they were concerned about his influence in these various places as he proclaimed Jesus as the one true Lord over all. And Patmos is a, a small island in the Aegean Sea, uh, which is off the western coast of what today is, is Turkey. You can look up Patmos, as I did, and, and you'll see that only about 3,000 people live there uh, even, even today. And uh, you probably don't know much about Patmos because it's not a very important place. It's not a place that makes the news, and, and that's the point. If Rome wanted to keep you away from uh, being influential, if you were a threat to their kingdom, they would exile you to a place of insignificance, and that in their day was this place, this island called Patmos, a place of exile, a place where you were marginalized, a place where you could exert no influence. And that's where John is as Jesus appears to him. Now, as you think about John in relation to the other apostles, that may not sound like that bad of a deal, being exiled to an island in, in the Aegean. Uh, you think of his brother James, who was the first of the apostles to be martyred. You read about this in Acts chapter 12, where he's beheaded by Herod. Or you think of what, at least according to church history and tradition, the apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down. Or Paul himself, who, again, according to church history, tradition, uh, was beheaded. In contrast to John, who lived to an old age, John didn't face the same, at least, real violence that came upon many of the other apostles, but he was exiled, and he, 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 he faced the threat of being silenced, uh, the threat of insignificance, exiled uh, to a place, a small place where nothing mattered, nothing that, ha that happened really mattered. And I think maybe that's, that's one way uh, we might be able to relate to John as we think about the things that are before us. Uh, and much of it may not seem uh, to be of significance. Uh, maybe you feel as though you don't exercise much influence. Uh, you're not a person who's near to the centers of, of power. You're not in the rooms where, where it happens, so to speak. And I think that's a way that we can relate to John. You know, think about turning on, Rex mentioned the, the news earlier, you think about turning on uh, the local news. I know most of us don't turn on the news uh, as we used to. We simply go online to check the news throughout the day. 
Uh, but back when we actually turned on the news regularly, the, the local news would always come before the national news. And there was this vast difference between the two, at least in, in the place, maybe even more so in the place where we, we lived prior to coming here in central Virginia. Right? New, uh, local news, small set. Uh, not much glam glamour. Right? Local newscasters. Uh, telling things that are really only of local interest, not really exceeding out beyond 30 or 50 mile radius, uh, maybe local high school sports, a new restaurant or a fire or, or whatever it, it might be. Uh, but things that don't matter in the wider world. And again, we may feel that way often about our own lives, if all that we have is what's before us. It may seem rather insignificant, and that is why we need this revelation that's held out to John, because it tells us that we are truly participants in something much greater than what is immediately before us. And we hear this even in the way that John introduces himself. If you look here at verse 9, where he identifies himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Right? John may be in Patmos, but he understands that though far removed from what appears in this world to be places of influence, he's actually a part of something much greater along with these other churches. Think about these things that he identifies himself as a partner in together with these churches. The tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance. Actually, the way John writes this, these things are even more closely related than they may appear to us. As John is, is writing, of course, he's writing in Greek. And there's just one definite article. Here there's three. The endurance, the kingdom, the, uh, uh, the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance. But as John writes, it's, it's a closer relationship with just the first of those definite articles. The tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance. Right? John presents them all together as part of a whole. But as you think about these things individually, tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, which of those don't seem to fit in your mind? If uh, you're uh, a child, or maybe you remember this when you were a child and you had these worksheets to do, object associations to help you, I guess, categorize things correctly in this world, and there'd be three different pictures. And you would have to X out the one that didn't belong. So maybe a banana, an apple, or, and broccoli, right? And you're supposed to X out the broccoli because it's not a fruit like the others. Or a goose, a cow, and a duck. You X out the cow because it doesn't have wings like the other two. There are three, but one of them doesn't belong. But what about the, the tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance? I would imagine that we would X out kingdom. Tribulation, hard things, frightening things that require patient endurance, but how does the kingdom fit with those things? 
Well, what we need to see is that Jesus' kingdom is inseparable from tribulation and patient endurance. Because Jesus brings his kingdom through tribulation and patient endurance, through his own suffering and through his own death. This is to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, but you see this down in verse 18, where he's described as the living one. He died, but it says, behold, he says, I am alive forevermore. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. He's the Lord of all, Lord and life and Lord and death and tribulation and endurance and what appears to matter and what may seem to us completely insignificant. He is the one who stands behind all of those things in his glory. And that is why all of it matters. And it's what Jesus wants to impress upon the church, his nearness to it all. And this brings us to, to another thing that we need to give attention to. That to correctly see the things before us, we need to clearly see what's behind us. And here is John exiled on, on Patmos. It's the Lord's day. It's the day where these churches throughout Asia Minor that he writes to would have been gathered in worship. And again, John is not with them. But notice here, uh, John uh, is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears this voice call from behind in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And the voice tells him to write what he sees. And that's repeated in verse 19. Write the things that you have seen what John sees is what we need to have constantly held before us. So what is it that John sees? Look in verse 12, John turns and behind him he sees these lampstands, but immediately his attention is drawn to the one who stands in the midst of them all, this one like a son of man the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he seeks. And that is what he's commanded to write to the churches, a description of who Jesus is as he stands in his glory in the midst of the church, represented by these seven lampstands. And this is what you must see. It's what we must see clearly in view if we're to remain faithful in the things that are before us, we need to see who Jesus is among us. And so think about this description here in verses 13 through 16. And, and let me ask you this. Is this the Jesus that you're familiar with? Is this the Jesus that you claim to know? This one whom... John describes here, clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest, hair white like wool, like snow, eyes like flames of fire, feet like bronze, a voice like the rush of the roar of rushing waters, holding stars, a double-edged sword coming forth, from his mouth, a face shining bright like the sun. Now, interestingly, John himself didn't seem familiar with this Jesus as he turns 
and sees him. He had spent three years with Jesus during Jesus' humiliation. In the midst of his ministry, he heard Jesus' parables. He saw Jesus' miracles. He witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. He saw Jesus after his resurrection. But here he sees Jesus like he had never seen him before, the ascended and glorified Lord over all. And this is how Jesus would have us see him now. Write down what you see, he says to him. Yes, uh, he's the one who came as the suffering servant. Uh, he's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He suffered. He was one who was despised, one who was esteemed not. Yet that work is past. What he came to do, he accomplished once for all. And now he's risen from the grave, and what's more, he's ascended into his Father's presence, where he's been given all authority and power. And he reigns gloriously from heaven, standing in the midst of his people, as John sees him here. But notice this too, that Jesus doesn't show himself to John and through him to the church in order to strike terror, but to give you great confidence in the things that are before you. That's why he shows himself to the church in this way, in the trials and the tribulations and the patient endurance that is required. You must see Jesus as he truly is as he shows himself here to be to John. A number of years ago, uh, Dove Soap, you may recall this, conducted what they called the Dove Real Beauty sketches. You can go and look this up on YouTube. And the way it, it worked was that they, they hired a forensic sketch artist. And he would sit in a room, and then you would have a person, I think it was all women, who would come in, and he wouldn't see the woman, but she would describe herself, and the sketch artist would draw her based on her description. And then they would bring another person in who had interacted with that woman just briefly, who had just described herself, and, and they would ask that person to describe that woman, and the sketch artist would draw another sketch based on that description. And they did this for numerous people. And then at the end, they, they would bring the person in and show them the two sketches side by side. Here is how you see yourself. Here is your description of yourself. And here is this other person's description of you. And inevitably, in, in every instance, the person had described themselves magnifying their blemishes, their flaws, lacking beauty. And the person who had only interacted with them briefly would come in and describe them as much more beautiful than they actually saw themselves. And, and the, as they stood before and, and saw these pictures, many of them were, were in tears, thinking, do I see myself for who I truly am? And they asked, one, one of the individuals, well, what, what are you thinking? And she said, how you see yourself impacts everything. 
And, and that captures what's true here for this vision, not how we see ourselves. But whether or not you see the true glorious beauty of Jesus Christ will impact everything for you. Are you familiar with this Jesus as he shows himself now to be, telling John to write what you see and send it to the churches? His beauty we look at it here described, you might say, is, is truly divine. In verses 14 and 15, hair, white like wool, like snow, flaming eyes through which he sees all, a face bright shining like the sun. And these are images that are taken from the Old Testament, pictures of God in places like Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 10. But there are other parts of the picture as well as you look at his dress in this long robe with a sash around his chest. He's pictured like a priest ministering in a temple with the lampstand. His power, the power of, the, of his word like many waters, uh, like a sword, not only a priest but a prophet. Uh, a feet of bronze uh, like a king standing upon the world to conquer, like a son of man pictured in the passage that was read earlier for us in Daniel chapter 7, this glorious figure who's come into promise, come into God's uh, presence, has been given a kingdom and dominion to rule over the nations, the one for whose return we await. Right, the picture is of an all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, everlasting, glorious Lord, transcendent above all, but not far removed at a distance. And that's the last thing that, that I want us to give our attention to, is that Jesus, in this image, though glorious beyond all, is not far removed from all. He sees Jesus standing in the midst of, of these lampstands. And, and so this is what we see as we, as we look at Jesus, it goes a long way to solving the mystery, to use the language of, of this passage, as John sees Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands with these seven stars in his hands, what's back behind everything. But the mystery concerns Jesus's relationship with the church, if you look again at verse 12, where Jesus tur John turns and sees the seven golden lampstands, in verse 16, in the vision, he, he holds these stars, and then verse 20, he tells John what it means. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here, here is Jesus standing close, in close proximity in the midst of his church. Think of the church here portrayed as the lampstand. If you remember in the Old Testament, there was a lampstand within the temple. 
and the holy place, the menorah with, with seven branches. Here you have seven lampstands. And, and the priest, of course, was to tend to that lampstand that its light would never go out, always filled with oil, wicks trimmed. And that light, that shine, represented the presence of God that then was to shine forth into the darkness of the world, the light as a witness. And that is what the church is with Jesus in her midst, a constant light that Jesus tends to, as he will, as we see in the letters to these churches, in Revelation 2 and chapter 3, of course, Jesus told his disciples, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. And Jesus confronts those churches for the various ways in which, for which darkness has crept into them. And he exhorts them. And so the question for those churches, as it is for, for this church, our church, is what is keeping this light from shining brightly among us? What is it that hinders this light of the Lord Jesus from shining forth in the world, in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Thyatira, in Laodicea, in Philadelphia, in Kanshahakin, or wherever it is that you might be? But what about these seven stars, which are the angels of these seven churches? That probably seems more obscure to us. Uh, you may know that the word angel in Greek simply means messenger. And so some believe that the angels to which Jesus refers are the pastors of these seven churches, the messengers through which he delivers his message to them. And you see in the letters that follow in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters are actually delivered to the church through the angel, the messenger of that church. So that's one possibility. Uh, the other uh, most likely possibility is they, they actually refer to heavenly beings. And the reason many think that is because that's always the way angel is used throughout the rest of Revelation, to refer to these heavenly beings. And so it conveys a closeness of the heavenly to the earthly. And either way, that is actually the point. Is the close proximity between the heavenly and the earthly as we see Jesus here standing in the midst of the church with closeness and care, with awareness and deep concern. He is near to his church. These seven churches representing all of the churches. It's the number seven in, in Scripture, of course, represents complete, completeness and wholeness. So here are these individual churches. But it's the same for every church. Jesus walks among the seven lampstands and even in our midst. And so the challenge is, yes, to see Jesus as he reveals himself to be. But the challenge also for you and me is to see the church in relation to Jesus as it truly is in the way that Jesus reveals here. I'm sure that all of you would have encouraging things to say uh, about this, our church, or maybe other churches that you've been a part of, uh, a place that's faithful to God's word, 
uh, a place that's welcome and, and friendly, a place where you form relationships, a place where you have grown in grace. But of course, in every church, there can be things that discourage us. Disagreements that happen, difficulties, things that just dissatisfy us. And maybe some of those things tend to have our attention. Despite the things that encourage us, the difficulties before us so quickly distract us from seeing Jesus in our midst. In his glorious, in his glorious, he would have us see him in the way that he reveals himself here. And that's why Jesus always draws attention first and foremost to himself. As we see him for who he is, as he reveals himself to be, it should be very hard for us to take our eyes off of him which allows us to endure many things with great confidence and great hope. He is the first and the last, the living one. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. Glorious uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made yourself known. And we confess that so often we fail to see you as you truly are, and so we're consumed with the things that are before us failing to take heed of your word here spoken from behind. May we turn uh, and see as we have your word held before us this morning more clearly who you are in your glory, that we might be drawn ever closer to you. And the more that we are drawn to you, may we shine all the brighter in this world, not only individually, but together as a congregation where you have called us, uh, that we might live for your glory in all things. Hear us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen. Let's conclude.